Well, if you've been with us for the last several months, you know that we're teaching on the name of Jesus, and you know we start with our same text scriptures in John 14, 15, and 16. So if you want to turn back there with me, or turn over there with me, we want to start in the same place that we have before. I uh, learned from Brother Hagin, and he said, until you, you never preach anything good until you preach it 50 times. So I think this is 22. John chapter 14, uh, Jesus is uh, speaking to his disciples. John is writing many years, almost 60 years after the fact, uh, relating information that uh, uh, at the end of his life, John's life, that uh, the other gospel writers don't tell us about. He's kind of filling in the blanks, if you'll allow me to say it that way. He's kind of filling in the blanks of what the other gospel writers were not impressed by the Holy Spirit to, to tell us. And uh, he gives us a lot of information about the last night that they were with Jesus, a lot of information about what Jesus said. And that information has a lot to do with, and uh, in my opinion, the, the primary part of that information has to do with the use of his name. So in John chapter 14, beginning in verse 12, Jesus said, but Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Verse 13. And whatsoever you shall ask. Now we've said it so many times, but I have to say it every time. This word ask does not mean request. It means to call for, require, or demand. He's talking about what you speak, not what you ask him for. Whatsoever you shall ask or speak in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask, same word, speak anything in my name, I will do it. Chapter 15, verse 7. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask. Same word, not request, but speak. You shall speak what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. In other words, Jesus is saying disciples, his disciples speak like them. We ought to be able to tell Christians by the way they talk. I'm glad you're excited about that. <laughs> it's absolutely the truth. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. Look with me to verse 16. You have not chosen me, but I've chosen you. Now, a lot of people look at this chosen and ordaining phrase that Jesus used, you've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you to bring forth fruit. A lot of people think that he's talking about disciples, or the apostles rather, uh, you know, the special place of ministry. But the place he's talking about is the place in him. The theme of this whole uh, section of Scripture, these several chapters of Scripture, is because he's going to the Father. He's talking about believers. He's talking about those that make Jesus the Lord of his life, of their lives, not those that are called to ministry. You've, chosen, you've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. What kind of fruit? Same fruit he's talking about in verses 7 and 8. The words of your mouth, the fruit of your lips. You've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. God's not into part-time results. That whatsoever you shall ask, call for required demand, speak, in my name, or of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Notice your words not only count where Jesus is concerned, but where God the Father is concerned. Finally, in Acts chapter 16, verse 23, Jesus said, And in that day, talking about the day we live in, the church age, the day following his resurrection, and in that day you shall ask me nothing. Now this word ask is the word request. It's not the same word. 
He's saying in the day of his resurrection, the day of the church age, he's saying you won't have to ask of me or you won't have to pray to me. But, verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask. This is the word call for require demand. Whatsoever you shall call for require demand or speak, literally, to the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto, up till now, have you asked, call for require demand, nothing in my name, ask or speak that you shall receive that your joy may be full. Verse 26, he tells us why this is true. He says, it's that day, our day. You shall ask in my name. That's the word call for require demand. I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. Now this word pray is the same word request that's translated ask in verse 23. The first time it's uh, used. First time the word ask is in verse 23. He says I'm not saying that I'll pray the Father or ask the Father for you. For the Father himself loveth you because you have loved me and, and believed that I came out from God. So the whole point of this is that Jesus says, because I'm going to the Father to make a way of salvation for every man who will receive, I am providing for you a means of authority. And that relationship that will be created through believing in me and receiving me as Lord and Savior, that relationship will enable you to speak directly to the Father and your words to matter, your words to count, your words to call the shots, if you will. Now, I know, and you know as well as I do, that I don't have authority in your life. I can't call the shots for you. Sometimes I wish I could. Sometimes I think a lot of people, would be, some people at least, would be better off if I could call the shots for them. But you're probably thinking the same thing. If you could call the shots for me, you'd change a lot about me. I'm confident of that. So we don't have ultimate authority in the world, but we have ultimate authority in our own life. Jesus is saying that relationship with the Father provides authority, a certain place of authority that's different than anything that he's had before. Now turn back with me. See, he's talking about authority. Authority is not going to mean one thing in John's gospel and another thing in Matthew's gospel. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 16. Let's notice what Jesus said about authority, talking about this day to come, meaning the day that he goes to the Father, the day he makes his sacrifice and is risen to into heaven to be seated on the right hand of God the Father. Notice what he said in Matthew chapter 16. Related to this same thing. Let's start reading in verse uh, 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that you're John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist had already been beheaded, so they must be thinking reincarnation. He said, some say that you're Elias. That's Elijah, who's been dead for hundreds of years. So again, they must be thinking reincarnation. And others, Jeremiah, who's been dead for hundreds of years as well, or one of the prophets. Then Jesus said unto them, but who do you say that I am? Whom say you that I am? Folks, that's the real question for mankind. What do you say about Jesus? Who do you say he is? A lot of different ideas out there. A lot of different theories about the way to God. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So whether the world believes it or not, Jesus said he is the only way. I know it's popular in some circles to think that there are many ways to God and there are many names for God and so forth. And, and folks, if Jesus told us the truth, that's hogwash. Jesus said, I'm the only way to the Father. I know it's popular in some circles, for politically correct circles, to say, well, we all serve the same God. The Muslims serve the same God as, as we do. They just call him Allah and we call him God. 
Allah is not God. Allah is not the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said he's the only way. He didn't say he's one way. He didn't say he's a good way. He said he's the only way. It's amazing to me how, how much it seems the further and further we go, the more trouble you get in by saying that simple truth. But it doesn't change the fact that it's true. So if they get to the point where they put you in jail for saying Allah is not God, I guess they're going to have to reserve some cells. Because it never is going to change from being the truth. Jesus said, I'm the only way to the Father. Now he said, who do you say that I am? Verse 15. Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now please notice what, what Peter is saying. Peter is saying, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now folks, what I want you to get here is not just the fact that Peter realized this. He's making the confession that Jesus is the Christ. He's making the confession that Jesus is the Christ. He may have known it before, but now he's saying it, and it's his confession. It's the words coming out of his mouth that prompts Jesus to say what he says. He said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. Now, why is that significant? Notice that, he, that Jesus is saying, You have divine revelation. But what good is the divine revelation until he speaks it? How long has Peter known this? A week? A month? A year? Or 30 seconds? Did he just get it at that moment? Do we have any record anywhere else in, the, in any of the Gospels up until this point in time where Peter or any of the other 12 have confessed that? What I want to get across to you folks is that Jesus is going to respond to Peter's confession, not just his knowledge. In the same way, God doesn't respond to your knowledge or my knowledge. You can know the word, but it's the speaking of the word that brings results. It's the speaking of the word that brings God's power on the scene. Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you. But my Father which is in heaven. I would imagine if we stop the story right, that, right there, Peter's feeling pretty good about himself. I sure would. I mean, to be singled out among the group, nobody else has confessed this that we have any record of. In this in instance, in this case, I, I'm not sure that Peter spoke quicker than anybody else, but, uh, but he's the one, regardless of what anybody else thinks or feels or anything else in this circumstance, Peter is the one that speaks up and makes the confession, and Jesus singles him out and says, what a blessing is yours because of the divine revelation you've now spoken. Verse 18, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now Peter cannot be the rock that the church is built on. So what is he saying? He's not talking about Peter being the rock. He's talking about the rock or the foundation of the church being built is the knowledge or the more, even more than the knowledge, the confession that Jesus is the Son of God. That's what the church is built on. Is there any way for anybody to be saved other than confessing Jesus as their Lord? Well then can we, can we unhesitatingly conclude then that the, not the, the foundation of the church has to be the confession of Jesus as Lord and Savior? It has to be. There is no church without a confession. There is no Christian without a confession that Jesus is Lord and Savior. 
That's what he's saying. He's saying, you're Peter, meaning small rock, literally so small that it's like shifting sand, but upon this rock, he's making a contrast, not a comparison. He's saying, but upon this rock. In other words, even the weakest, most unstable, most impulsive person can come into the church upon the foundation that Jesus is Lord through the confession of their mouth. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We've, uh, I'm going to uh, take some things for granted. Uh, hopefully you were with us before when we looked at Genesis chapter 21 when uh, uh, God told Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. He didn't tell him to kill him, but he said offer him as a sacrifice. And if you remember the story, Abraham does everything up to the point where he raises the knife up and the angel speaks to him and says, don't lay your hand on the child. Shows him the, uh, the, the ram in the bush. He offers that as a sacrifice instead. But the important thing is that God says, now I know because you've not withheld your only son from me. Now I know that you'll serve me. And he gives him a blessing. He makes a blessing to him. He says to him, this is Genesis chapter 21, verse 17, I think. He says to him, your seed shall be as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. And he said, and your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Now that's the first time that God's ever said that to Abraham. That's the first time. In fact, he, uh, he adds um, a part of the blessing, what we know of as the blessing of Abraham, or the promise that he made to Abraham uh, for the first time. Genesis chapter 21, verse 17. And your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Now that's an Old Testament term literally meaning your seed will dominate the stronghold of their enemies. In other words, your seed will have dominion. He's talking to him about dominion. He's talking to him about eternal dominion. Now we know that the seed of Abraham, Paul goes into great detail in both Galatians uh, chapter 3 and uh, Romans chapter 9. He goes into great detail about not all Israel is Israel. The promise of Abraham, the promise made to Abraham, the blessing of Abraham was not made into Abraham's seeds, plural, but to seeds, singular, meaning it's made through Jesus. People look at the, the blessing of Abraham and they, the church oohs and ahs about all the things that, that God promised Israel and, oh, if only that was promised to us. And the fact is, Israel was just a temporary holder of the blessing that was to come through Jesus. So the thing that the church looks at and says, yeah, that was to Israel and it was uh, physical blessings and material blessings and oh, wouldn't it be great if, if, uh, if it was like that for us today. They're operating in the blessing that was designed for the church. It never was their blessing. Now it could be their blessing. Then they certainly were the holders of the blessing until Jesus came. But any person, Jew or Gentile, who makes Jesus the Lord of their lives now is, has access to that promise of Abraham or that blessing of Abraham because it was through Jesus that that promise was made not through Isaac Isaac was the physical descendant but the promise was through Jesus the line through Jesus and not through any natural descendants so where God says here where Jesus says here upon this rock I will build my church notice Jesus is the one that builds it We've seen the foolishness and the, and the failure of men trying to build the church, haven't we? Jesus is the builder of the church. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell. Please notice that phrase. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I've told you this before, and maybe you know it from having been there yourself, but this place literally exists. In Caesarea Philippi, the, the ruins are still there. And there's this great big cave there that's called the gates of hell. 
Now, it's not so much now. There are times of the year and flood times and so forth where it still is uh, similar. But in, uh, in olden times, they tell us that there was this great fountain that would come up from the, from the depths. And, uh, and to appease gods, they would throw human sacrifices. Well, not always human, sometimes human sacrifices into there. And if somebody survived, then they accepted that or recognized that as that the sacrifice was, was uh, accepted. But nobody ever survived because it was this great whirlpool and it sucked everything down and, and so forth. There's, uh, there are very few um, historical records where anybody ever sacrificed or any, anyone or anything ever survived this thing. So I, I guess they're trying to appease some God that never was happy. But where it talks about the gates of hell, Jesus is speaking figuratively about a, an, a place that really existed. Now that's not the only thing that, that uh, is there at Caesarea Philippi. There are all kinds of little alcoves and, and carvings into the, the rock walls and, and that kind of stuff that, where they'd set false idols and different gods. And, and when it, was, it was kind of a, a one-stop shop, mall-type situation for, for worshiping false gods. You could worship this god and then go and worship this god and this god. I mean, there was just a, a line of them, 10 or 12 different false gods and idols and things set up where people would go and, and worship. But the, the big one was known as the gates of hell. I mean, that was, that was the big deal because that's what got everybody's attention. Spectacular things have always gotten people's attention, and that was certainly qualify for this. So Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But there's a deeper meaning behind this. He's not just talking about false gods, or the worship of false gods will not prevail against it. There's something that goes further than this that he's referring to that they certainly didn't get until many years later, if ever. And that's this. The Bible says two things about Jesus. It says Jesus was the first begotten from the dead, or first born from the dead. Now that can't be physical death, because Jesus was not the first one that was resurrected from physical death. You remember in the Old Testament, there was a, a time where um, a couple of Jewish guys were about to bury some fella, and then they saw the enemy, saw the Philistines or somebody coming around the corner, and so they just dumped him into a cave real quick and didn't take time to bury him. Well, that cave happened to be the place where Elisha was buried, and his bones were there in that cave, and as soon as the body came in contact with those bones, he revived. That dead guy revived and came out and ran back home with the rest of the guys. Well, he was resurrected from physical death, Right? Well, then Jesus couldn't be the firstborn or first begotten from physical death. Well, what was he the firstborn of? He was the firstborn from spiritual death. Now, folks, I know this is, this is difficult for some people, and, and I, I personally don't understand why it's difficult. I know that uh, there's, a, there's a lot of religious thinking about it. But uh, I'm not trying to be controversial, but you need to understand something. You can't be born back from something you didn't get or you weren't. In other words, if Jesus was first, the firstborn or first begotten from spiritual death, he had to die spiritually. Now, people have a hard time with that. How could God die spiritually? Well, Jesus came, became, uh, came to the earth as a man. He laid aside his heavenly power and glory and offered himself as a sacrifice unto man. Remember, Jesus said about himself, nobody can take my life, but I can lay it down. And if I lay it down, I can take it back up again. So what does that tell us? Well, Jesus on the cross died. He laid down his life willingly. It wasn't taken from him. God didn't even take it from him. But he willingly laid down his life. Now, that's not talking about physical death or his physical life. He laid down his life spiritually. He became the spiritual sacrifice for your sins. See, physical death is not the penalty for sin. Spiritual death is. You remember in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve fell. 
God said, In the day that thou shalt eat thereof, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day that thou shalt eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. We wasn't talking about physical death. Adam didn't die for 930 years after he ate of the tree. So what death is he talking about? He's talking about dying spiritually. Adam died spiritually. The light went out on the inside of him. From that moment forward, he and all of mankind was dominated by the law of sin and death. That's spiritual death. So where it says Jesus was the firstborn from the dead, he had to pay a spiritual price for spiritual death, not a physical price. The physical price was just the laying down of his physical body so that his spirit could pay the eternal price for redemption. So if Jesus was fir the firstborn from spiritual death, he had to die spiritually. Now what I want you to understand is two things. First of all, where was he born again? He was born again behind the gates of hell. So where Jesus is talking about upon this knowledge or upon this rock, the confession that he's Lord and Savior, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, certainly it has an application for the church, but it also has a, per a personal application for him. See, God didn't raise Jesus from the dead and say, well, okay, we're going to get you stronger and we're going to you know, heal you up a little bit and then we'll let you take on the devil. Jesus was born again in the devil's stronghold. He was born again in the place that represents the bondage of mankind, the law of sin and death in action. Jesus was born again in the devil's strongest hold upon mankind. And when that life came back into Jesus, however that worked, I've seen, heard people describe it and how they think it worked, and they might be right, I don't know. But however that went, it had to be by the Word of God. The Bible says we're born again by the incorruptible seed of the Word of God. So it had to be God speaking some way or another, declaring that the work was finished, that the price was paid, and therefore life came back into Jesus and revived Him. At that moment, Jesus literally threw back the forces of hell and death. Now the, same, the second thing I want you to realize, first was it happened in the pit of hell in the devil's stronghold. And I don't mean the devil, I don't believe the devil goes back and forth to hell. What's he visit for? You know? Getting things ready for his eternity? You know. Come on. So I don't think the devil visits back and forth to hell any more than he visits back and forth to heaven. But hell represents the bondage the eternal bondage that he had over mankind. And so when I'm saying he threw back, Jesus threw back the forces of hell and death, what I mean by that is he beat Satan in the prison that Satan had created or that existed for mankind. Now the second thing I want you to see is Jesus was born again. Now what does the Bible say happens to you when you make him the Lord of your life or you confess Jesus as Lord? You're born again. Jesus had the same born-again experience as you. The second thing the Bible says about Jesus is not just that he was the first, first begotten or firstborn from the dead, but it says he was the firstborn among many brethren, meaning he's got the same new birth that you do. It's not a different new birth. It's not a better new birth. It's the same new birth. He was just as spiritually dead as you were spiritually dead. God doesn't have the premium new birth package available for Jesus and then the everyday new birth package available for you and me. It's the same new birth. 
Now, the reason that I say that is because I think a lot of times people discount the new birth that they have. I think people discount being born again. Paul wrote to the church, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, and all things have become new. If we could understand what that means, it would revolutionize the church. We'd become like the Bible talks about the early days of the church. They that have come hither have turned the world upside down. All things have become new. Now, folks, what kind of change can you envision? And I know we just have to speculate about this. But here Jesus is in the pit of hell, in the lowest part of hell, paying the eternal price for redemption. The Bible says, describes it as the waves of God's wrath being poured out, pounded upon Jesus, wave after wave after wave after wave after wave. And then all of a sudden, the price is paid. I don't know how that's calculated. I don't know how that was figured out. But at the moment, the Bible says at the moment that Jesus paid the price, he was raised again for our justification. When the price was paid, not one second longer, when the price was paid, when the wrath of God was satisfied against sin, not man, but sin, then Jesus was raised. Jesus was born again. Now, what kind of change can you envision from being in the pit of hell with waves of God's wrath pounding upon him wave after wave after wave to now he's being born again on his way, comes back to the earth, picks up his body on his way to the Father to present himself as the eternal sacrifice and to be seated at the right hand of God. What kind of change does that, uh, uh, does your imagination come up with in that situation? Pretty drastic, huh? what kind of change occurred for you see we can imagine and envision these things about jesus and think wow the power of god raised jesus from the dead brought him out of the pit of hell and set him at god's own right hand well what do you think the power of god did for you it lifted you out of the same prison you weren't there in reality but your position was the same as jesus when he was held captive by the gates of hell and death you were in bondage to the law of sin and death while you were still here on the earth. And that was your destination, whether you liked it or not, whether you wanted it to be or not. So what kind of change happened or occurred for you? Well, as far as God's concerned, the same change has occurred for you and me. That's what it means. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The gates of hell no longer prevail against you any more than the gates of hell prevailed against Jesus when the life of God came back at, upon him. Are you with me? Making any sense to you? Now, Jesus, knowing that this is coming, I'll prove it to you in just a few verses. Knowing that these things are coming, knowing what he's talking about, where he says, upon this rock, the foundation is the confession that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Notice the next thing that he says, and I will give you, and I will give you. Notice what that position that he's going to obtain, that position that he's going to gain by conquering the power of the enemy, by paying the eternal price and sacrifice for the redemption of mankind. Notice the next thing he says will occur because of that. He said, and I will say, or I will give unto thee, verse 19, the keys of the kingdom. Notice it's not the keys to the kingdom. If you've ever checked into a hotel, they give you a key to your room. But the person that has the keys of the hotel can open every room. 
is the keys of the kingdom. And I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom and. Everybody say and. Here's what these keys are supposed to do. Here's what these keys will lock or unlock. And whatsoever thou shalt bind. The word bind means to prohibit or forbid. On earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The word loose just simply means to allow. Notice what he says. Because of the, the work that I'm going to do, the sacrifice that I'm going to make, because of the change that's going to occur, the spiritual life that's going to be exchanged for spiritual death for mankind, for Jesus and for you, same change, same exchange, same result, same new birth. Notice what he says it'll do. It'll provide you keys so that whatever you prohibit will be prohibited. Whatever you allow will be allowed. And notice it starts here on the earth. Whatever you uh, allow or whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. It starts here, not in heaven. And whatever you loose or allow on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Clearly, no matter what you think about binding and loosing, clearly he's talking about these keys will provide authority for the individual. Right? Now, how's that authority going to be exercised? Let's keep reading. Verse 20, Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. You wouldn't think Jesus would want to keep that silent or quiet. You'd think he'd want everybody to know. But he wanted everybody to find out for themselves, just like Peter did through Revelation. Verse 21, From that time forth began Jesus to show. The word show means clearly teach his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. So if the Bible is to be believed, if, if Matthew is writing by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, and by the way, he's one of the ones that the, Jesus was teaching. This is a first-hand account. If he's telling us the truth by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, Jesus from that moment or from that point in time began to clearly teach his disciples, here's what's going to happen in a few days, well, it's actually it's a couple of weeks from this. Not too long uh, away, not too far away. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be uh, um, persecuted and threatened by the chief priests and elders. They're going to take me captive. They're going to kill me, and I'm going to rise again the third day. This is why Jesus upbraided his disciples after his resurrection for not believing in him. Because he's been clearly, for several weeks, he clearly teaches them this is what's going to happen. That doesn't mean he mentions, oh, by the way. He clearly teaches them. Clearly means he leaves no doubt in their understanding about what's going to happen. Now, that doesn't mean they believed it. doesn't mean they accepted it. But he taught them. He told them enough for them to be able to get it if they wanted to. Then Peter took him. Verse 22, Peter, you know, the one that just spoke by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, my divine revelation, the guy that was feeling so good about himself a couple of verses before. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, be it, far not, be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But then Jesus turned and said unto Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Now, Peter is not Satan. So who is Jesus talking to? He's saying, just as you spoke, you made a confession by revelation of the Father. Now you're speaking by the inspiration of the devil. Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Is he getting on to Peter about this? 
No, he's saying your words are of the devil. I wonder how many of the devil's words Jesus has had to listen to from the church throughout the years. We probably don't want to know. He's not condemning Peter because this is the, the result of the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden. This is the result of spiritual death taking hold of mankind. This is the result of the law of sin and death and operation in the earth. One of the things that Adam lost in the Garden of Eden, he lost the ability for his tongue to produce goodness and life only. When God made Adam and put him in charge and gave him dominion over the works of his hand, he said, dress and keep the garden. In other words, Adam, you're in charge. Whatever you say goes. Adam knew only, the only information he had, the only source of, of, um, uh, of words that he had to speak was what he got from God. He hadn't been to school, which was a real benefit for him, I'm sure. Nobody had taught him how not to do things. The only thing he knew is what he'd learned from God the Father himself. So every word that came out of his mouth was pure and powerful. Adam's words came to pass just like God's words came to pass. Because there was no sin, there was no death, there was no, no perversion. There was no speaking doubt, there was no unbelief, there was nothing of that sort. Everything that was on the earth, including Adam and the words that he produced, were good, holy, pure, and full of power. But when Adam fell, that's part of what he lost. He lost the ability to produce goodness from his words, or goodness only from his words. He lost the ability for life to be the only thing that came from his mouth. Now he's speaking both blessings and cursings. And it's not working for him the way that it did before. Because now he's operating not by the knowledge that he received from God only. There was still knowledge that he retained, certainly. But now he's operating from knowledge that he's getting from his five physical senses. We talked about the change that occurred when Jesus was born again. Think about the change that occurred when Adam fell. He's infused with the life of God. Every cell of his body is infused with that life. Every fiber of his being is permeated with the life and the healing power and the goodness and the blessings of God. Every word that he speaks comes to pass. Everything that he touches works like magic. I hate to use that term, but you know what I mean. Good is the only thing that can be produced. And now all of a sudden, the light goes out. He's lost his relationship with God. The first thing that he was aware of was that he was separated from God. He saw his own need. He saw his own lack. He saw that he was naked and ashamed. God even asked him later on when he tried to cover himself up. He said, who told you you were naked? In other words, how'd you know? God's never had a naked talk with him before. How did you know? Now, God knew that he already fell. But I think that's more for our benefit than anything else. Who told you you were naked? Well, how did Adam know that he was naked? Because now he's getting information from his physical body. Not from his spirit alone. He looks at himself. And says wow. This is not the way it used to be. I believe that he was clothed with light before. If that was the case. The reason I think that is because the Bible says God is light. The Bible t gives us an example that Moses. In the face of. Uh, um, um, in the presence of God for 40 days. Came down from the mountain. And his face was shining. It was glowing. It was shining. So much so that he had to put a veil over his face because people were afraid of him. Well, what in the world do you think it was like with Adam when there was no presence of sin? 
If that was the case, I don't know for sure, but if that was the case, he would certainly be aware that that light had gone out, wouldn't he? So now what is he doing? He's scrambling for information. He's scrambling for a source of information. He's, I have no doubt that he's trying to get back to where he was. He's trying to say, oh, I didn't mean that. I wish I hadn't done that. What can I do to change this? He's looking for anything and everything he can from his physical surroundings and his physical environment. And nothing works. Because it's a spiritual issue, not a physical issue. That's why Jesus had to die spiritually. Because sin is not a physical issue. So the change that occurred in Adam is now that his words don't carry the same power. I'm sure that the first words that he spoke after he fell, he knew there was a difference. He realizes that he's lost not only his appearance of the presence of God, but he's lost the power that God placed on the inside of him. That's what man lost. In the fall. You remember Jesus in Mark chapter 12, or Matthew chapter 12, I guess. Jesus talked to the Pharisees and he said, How is it that you're the same mouth speaks blessings and cursings? It's not the way that it should be. I think too many Christians allow it to be that way without realizing the importance of their words. Jesus said, Every idle word that you speak, you'll give an account for. Not most of them, everyone. Everyone. Folks, your mouths are precious. Your words are precious. It's wor the words that come out of your mouth are more important than the money that you have. Now, you wouldn't go out into the street and just start throwing money around, would you? I don't mean throwing it around spinning, and I mean throwing, away, throwing it around to waste it. Nobody would do that because they consider money valuable. Your words are more valuable than your money. Your words should be cared for and counted more carefully than the money that you have in the bank. Well, Peter's not doing that. Now, can you blame Peter? I mean, let's back up and look at it from his side. We're looking at it from Jesus' side. Now let's look at it from Peter's side. Would Peter want that to happen? Would Peter want him to be killed? And even if he is going to be raised again the third day, he hears about the chief priests and the elders. He knows about them. He's seen, people put, uh, he's seen them put people to death before. Would he have any uh, desire for that to come fast or to be true? Well, certainly not. But notice Peter doesn't say, wait a minute, hold on. Jesus, what do you mean be killed and what do you mean be raised again the third day? He doesn't ask him about the resurrection. He's, he doesn't say, well, if you're going to be killed and raised again the third day, that doesn't sound good, but there must be a purpose in it. What are you talking about? What's going to happen and why? Those are not his questions. His immediate response would be the same as ours, and that is, oh, Jesus, we don't want that to happen to you. But why wouldn't they want that to happen to him? Because they don't understand what's going on. Folks, I've got the benefit of hindsight that Peter didn't have, but I'm glad that happened to Jesus. I hate that he had to suffer for it, but somebody had to. I certainly couldn't. Neither could you, so I'm glad he did. So I'm glad that these things happened just like Jesus said. But from a physical and human standpoint, Peter didn't want it to happen any more than you and I would have. And Jesus recognizes that Peter, speaking according to his own desires, is speaking out against his Jesus's own words notice he said get thee behind me Satan for thou art an offense unto me for that thou savorest not the things that be of God but those that be of men then said Jesus unto his disciples if any man will come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me 
Why in the world? Now, the church has pulled that out of, out of its setting and said, oh, we're supposed to die to self. Well, folks, doesn't the Bible say if any man be in Christ, he's a new self? Why would you want to die to that? You're supposed to live to that. You're supposed to live up to that. Now, the Bible does say to crucify the flesh. The Bible does say to put to death the deeds of the flesh. But that's not you. That's not the real you. When Jesus is talking about denying himself, what is he talking about? He's got to be connecting these two things together. It's the same setting. Jesus just said, just began to teach clearly that he's going to the cross. He's going to be killed and raised again the third day. And Peter speaks up and says, no, not so, Lord. That shouldn't be that way for you. And Jesus says, that speech, that th confession was of the devil. And it's an offense unto me. Why is it an offense unto God? Why is speaking the devil's words an offense unto God? Because it's the perversion of what Jesus or God says. In other words, the devil's confession, even though it may have been well-meaning, even though it may have been well-intentioned, I'm sure Peter was sincere in his desire that Jesus not suffer those things, that feeling caused Peter to speak contrary to what Jesus just said. Now, is anything Jesus has ever said a lie? Is anything Jesus has ever said to be spoken against? Is there any possibility for it to be untrue in any measure whatsoever? Of course not. So anytime we take sides to speak against God's word, no matter what the reason behind it, no matter how well-intentioned we might be or how sorry we feel for somebody or something or whatever, anytime we speak against the word of God, we are doing what Jesus said that we must not do. When Jesus is talking about denying himself, he's talking about denying the de desire or the temptation to speak against his word. Taking up your cross means to accept the word to be true instead of how you feel. The, the church world has turned this taking up your cross stuff to mean you've got to bear your burdens here on the earth. Well, I thought the Bible said Jesus took those. I thought the Bible says we're supposed to cast those over on him. Yeah, but I, this cancer is just my cross to bear. No, Jesus just took that. Why should Jesus want you to carry something he's already borne away? Well, this, this trouble is just my lot in life. No. The only trouble that, you, that the, the Bible really doesn't say that you can get away from is persecution. And the Bible says, they that live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution, which is the ex reason why most Christians aren't persecuted. That'll hit you later. Most Christians don't live up to a godly lifestyle to be persecuted for. Because persecution is going to happen. And that's what Paul's thorn in the flesh is all about. Paul sought the Lord three times. Take this from me. Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, Jesus is saying, I never redeemed you from persecution, Paul. But don't worry, my strength will get you through. You can overcome the persecution. Don't let it stop you. Don't let it slow you down. And for goodness sakes, quit whining about it. But everything else, Jesus redeemed you from by, the, by his own precious blood. He redeemed you from affliction. Doesn't mean it won't come, but you can win every time. He redeemed you from sickness. Doesn't mean you won't be attacked with sickness, but you can overcome every time. He redeemed you from poverty. Doesn't mean lack won't show up from time to time, but you can overcome it and be su uh, sufficiently supplied, fully supplied. So where he's talking about, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, he's talking about denying his fleshly desires to speak against the word. 
Verse 25, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Now what in the world makes the difference between gaining and losing your soul? Now this word soul here, he's talking about spirit. He's talking about the entirety of the eternal part of man. What makes the difference between the gaining and the losing of your soul? He's talking about salvation. What's the foundation of the church? The confession that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. So what's he saying about losing his life and gaining his life? It comes through the words of your mouth. He goes even further. Verse 27, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he shall reward every man according to his works. That's the reason why eternal life is so important. There is something coming later than just what we see around us. Now notice verse 28. He said, Verily I say unto you, There shall be some standing here which shall not taste of death till or until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now most people attach verse 28 to verse 27 where he's talking about the Son of Man coming in the, in the clouds with the angels and so forth. And they think that he's talking about coming in his kingdom at the end of the age. But if that's true, how could any of these guys live to a time that's beyond even our day? If this were true, then John would be 2,200 years old. I mean, he lived in 90-something. That's pretty good. But so many times people read this and they think he's talking about coming at the end. That's not what he's talking about. What is the kingdom of God? Let me refer you to Luke chapter 17, verse 20. It says, And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God comes not with observation. That means outward show. That means through the things that you can see. The kingdom of God doesn't come through the things you can see. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. So where Jesus says in verse 28 of Matthew 16, Verily I say unto you, There be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. He's talking about the resurrection. Now, in my thinking, if this is just the twelve, and I think it is because Jesus is giving them private information, if this is just the twelve, there's only one of the twelve that's not alive when Jesus is raised from the dead, and that's Judas. Judas kills himself between the, the trial of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus. So he wasn't alive to see the new birth in an operation. He wasn't alive to see the change that occurred in the other 12. So when Jesus says there are some that are standing here that will be alive, he's talking about there are some that are standing here that will experience the kingdom of God. Now remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 6, verses uh, 9, 10, somewhere around there. The disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. And Jesus pr taught them the, what's known in the church world as the Lord's Prayer. It's really not the Lord's Prayer. It's the disciples' prayer. But remember a part of it. Part of the prayer is, it starts off, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then it says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Notice what Jesus put together. He talked about the kingdom of God and the will of God being done on the earth. The kingdom of God and the will of God being done on the earth. And that's what he said to pray for. Now why did they need to pray for it? Because it hadn't yet come. Now the reason that the Lord's Prayer, what's known as the Lord's Prayer, really the disciples' prayer, is not a New Testament prayer, is because we aren't instructed to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on, in earth even as it is in heaven. 
Why? Because the kingdom of God has already come. The kingdom of God is within us because of Jesus going to the Father and giving us, as a result, and giving us the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are interchangeable terms in this case. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Behold, old things have passed away and all things have become new. He's talking about the result of the new birth. He's talking about the exercise of man's authority through the confession of his mouth, the confession that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Now, if the confession of Jesus is Lord and Savior or the confession of the Word, we could say it that way, the confession of the Word that tells us that Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins and was raised from the dead, if the confession that the Word, the knowledge that, bring, that is brought to us by the Word is the thing that changes our lives, how do you think we're supposed to exercise authority now that we're in the kingdom? This is what amazes me about the modern-day Christian. Faith is fine to get saved with even if they don't know it's faith. I mean, they accept that, you know, by grace you're saved through faith and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Yeah, 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 yeah. We learn that one. We repeat that one. Memorize that one. But what does that really mean? Well, it means we got saved. Well, did it take faith to get saved? Well, yeah, I guess so. Well, what did you do? I just asked Jesus into my heart. Well, how are you going to exercise authority here on the earth? What's authority? Well, how are you going to use your faith on the earth? Well, what's faith? The church world understands to come in the door to enter into the kingdom, but when it comes to use of the same faith, the same vehicle, the same means to operate in any and every part of the kingdom of God and all the blessings of the kingdom of God, it's like the church goes brain dead. And when somebody does start operating in faith or somebody does start teaching about the words of your mouth and so forth, the rest of the church world looks at you like you're some kind of nut. Well, who's the nut? Seems to me that it's pretty nutty to, to ignore the truth of the word. And over and over and over again, the Bible tells you about the authority that is exercised through one and only one way, and that is the words of your mouth. Notice again in Matthew chapter 16, verse uh, 19. And I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Let me read this to you from the Amplified. Hold on a second. Let me get it, uh, pull it up on my iPad. Eh, wrong book. 16, verse 19. Okay. Here it is. Matthew 16, verse 19, in the Amplified says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind, declare to be improper and unlawful on earth, must be what is already bound in heaven. And whatever you loose or declare lawful on the earth must be of what is already loosed in heaven. What is he saying? Well, isn't that the same thing Jesus told his disciples to pray? Thy will be done, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Or thy, I mixed that up. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't that the same thing? Isn't he saying to pray that the same thing that is the will of God in heaven would be done here on the earth? Well, what's heaven like? I mean, we'll pick some obvious and easy ones. Concerning sickness. He's saying thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven regarding sickness. Well, what's it like for sickness in heaven? There is none. Well, if there is none in heaven, it means God doesn't want there to be any. 
It means it is not his will for there to be sickness in heaven. So we're supposed to pray, or they were, the disciples were supposed to pray, that the will of God would be done on the earth concerning sickness just like it is in heaven. Well, what would the will of God be done be here on the earth like in heaven? For his children to be free from sickness. Now, we don't have to pray for that because Jesus accomplished it. The Bible says Jesus bore our infirmities and took our sicknesses and with his stripes were healed. So that's already been done. That was part of what Jesus did. That's why the Bible doesn't say pray today that the will of God would be done on the earth. He said instead, Jesus said, use the keys of the kingdom to bind sickness on the earth in your life. Because if the Amplified is accurate in its translation, what we bind on earth must already be bound in heaven. Well, isn't sickness bound in heaven? If there's no presence of sickness, then it has to be bound in heaven. Then what do we lose on the earth? We lose what Jesus obtained for us through his sacrifice and his resurrection. How do we do that? Well, the only way you can exercise any authority, the only way you can exercise any spiritual force in any way whatsoever is by the words of your mouth. That's how you got saved, is by the words of your mouth. You exercised authority over sin and death to become saved through the words that you spoke. So then how do you exercise authority over anything else here in the earth? Through the words that you speak. And isn't that the way God created man to be here on the earth to begin with? Turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. I know I'm running out of time, so I'll try to wrap this up quickly. Deuteronomy chapter 28 tells us the promise that God made to Abraham. In other words, this is what God has loosed on the earth that we, or I'm sorry, this is what God has loosed in heaven from a spiritual standpoint that we have a right to loose on the earth. Let's start in chapter 28, verse 1. And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all of his commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings, everybody say all. He didn't say some of these blessings. He said, and all of these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Now again, as I said earlier, the church world looks at this and says, oh, the blessings of Abraham, the blessings that belong to Israel. Well, in the strictest sense, these are not the blessings of Israel. These are not the blessings of the Jews. These are the blessings of Abraham. And as I said before, Galatians chapter 3 and Romans chapter 9 are very clear that the blessings of Abraham come through the seed, not seeds, not descendants, not physical descendants or heirs, but the seed of Abraham, which is Christ. So this belongs to those which are Jesus, which belong to Jesus. I'll remind you also of Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. It says, and if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. These are things that belong to you. These are things that belong to the church. The Jews were just the holders until Jesus came along. Now these blessings don't belong to the Jews. They belong to the church. Well, why do they work for the Jews then? Because they believe in them. Because they say them. Because they act in accordance with them. And as human beings, they have authority here on the earth. And they exercise that authority for material blessings. Well, what would happen if the church exercised their authority toward material blessings too? We'd have the same and even better stuff. If the Bible's true. You always got to have that little 
qualifier in there, if the Bible's true. Well, of course the Bible's true. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee. Notice you can't run fast enough to get away from the blessings. A Christian who's walking in the authority of the, of the word should never be able to outrun the blessings of God. No matter how fast he runs. The Christian's job is to run as fast as he can to keep up with God and the blessings catch him every time. It's a game of tag, an eternal game of tag. Or perpetual, not eternal, but perpetual game of tag. Verse 3, Blessed shalt thou be in the city and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle and the increase of thy kind and the flocks of thy sheep. It's talking about your business. You may not need sheep or cattle or anything like that, but whatever your business is, it's talking about your business will increase. Blessed shall be thy basket and thy store. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way and flee before thee seven ways. The Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses, and in all that thou settest thine hand unto, and he shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. <coughs> Please notice that God's the one that commands the blessing. You don't even have to command the blessing. God does it. What's your job? Your job is to keep the commandment. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, we don't have the same commandments that they did. No, yours is a lot easier than theirs was. But they're kept the same way, and I'll, I'll prove it to you as we go. Verse 9, The Lord shall establish thee a holy people unto himself, as he has sworn unto thee. If thou shalt keep the commandment of the Lord thy God and walk in his ways. Notice it comes down to one thing, and that's keeping the commandment. And all the people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of thee. I don't think this means afraid like afraid they're going to get on to us or come after us or anything like that. I think it means afraid, or literally the word means afraid in the sense that they have respect unto you. The world should be looking at the church saying, wow, God is really on their side. How the church world has come to the place that we are is a sad commentary. It's a sad commentary of what belongs to us and what we have not walked in. God's intent was for the world to look at the church and say, wow, I'd like to be part of that. Instead of looking at the church saying, man, those people are weak-minded. They need some kind of crutch to get them through the day. Some kind of fantasy belief to keep them going. Verse 11. And the Lord shall make thee plenteous in goods. Plenty means enough, doesn't it? In my thinking, it means even more than enough. Plenteous in goods, in the fruit of thy body, in the fruit of thy cattle, in the fruit of thy ground, in the land which the Lord swear unto thy fathers to give thee. The Lord shall open unto thee his good treasure, the heaven, to give the rain unto thy land in his season, and to bless all the work of thine hand. And thou shalt lend unto many nations, and thou shalt not borrow. It's a shame for church, the church and Christians to be in the debt that they're in. Doesn't mean it's wrong to be in debt. It means God's plan is that you would never have to be. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, that's just the way the world works. Yeah, the world is governed by the God of this world who is Satan. How many Christians do you know? Hopefully you're not one of them. But how many Christians do you know that are in bondage to debt? And their hope for ever getting out is slim or none. So what are they going to do if God tells them to go do something or obey him in some way? Well, they can't afford to take a day off work. Because of their debts. It's just another way that the devil has exercised the law of sin and death over the church. 
Verse 13, the Lord shall make thee the head and not the tail, and thou shalt be above only, and thou shalt not be beneath. If that thou hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day, to observe and to do them. And thou shalt not go aside from any of the words which I command thee this day, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. Look with me over to chapter 30. If we only we could figure out what it really means to keep the commandments. Notice verse 9, chapter 30, verse 9. And the Lord will make thee plenteous in, in every work of thine hand, in the fruit of thy body, and in the fruit of thy cattle, and in the fruit of thy land, for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over thee for good, as he rejoiced over thy fathers. In other words, you can have it just like Abraham had it, who was very rich in silver and cattle and gold. Why was Abraham very rich in silver and cattle and gold? He kept the commandments of the Lord. He did what God told him to do. Verse 10, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in the book of the law, this book of the law, and if thou turn unto the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul. Now notice verses 11 through 14. For this commandment which I command thee this day, it is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. In other words, you shouldn't have to wonder what it is. It is not in heaven that thou should say, who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that thou shouldest say, Who shall go over the sea for us, and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very nigh thee. Notice how you kept the commandments in the olden days. But the word is very nigh thee, in thy mouth and in thy heart, that thou mayest do it. Now these are the very scriptures that Paul quotes over in Romans chapter 10, where he's talking about, Confession, confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior to be saved. Nothing's changed, folks. The exercise of authority is the same today for mankind as it was in the old days, in Abraham's time, in Israel's time, and so forth. It comes through the words that you speak. The law of binding and loosing hasn't changed. You bind what God has prohibited in heaven with the words of your mouth. You loose what Jesus has obtained for you through the words of your mouth. It's all the same. It wasn't an Old Testament principle and now a New Testament principle. It's all the same. We just got more information and more good stuff to confess than they did. Notice in verse 15, he said, See, I have set before thee this day life and good, death and evil. In that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways through Speaking his word. We know that has to be part of it because that's what God said. And to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that thou mayest live and multiply, and the Lord thy God shall bless thee in the land whether thou goest to possess it. Now, is there not an implication here that if you don't speak the word, the blessing that God wants you to have won't come into being? He says, walk in his commandments. We know that the, he said you don't need to ask what the commandment is. The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and thy heart. Paul goes further to say that is the word of faith which we preach. He's saying, now speak the word so I can bless you like I want to. Speak the word so that the blessing of Abraham can come to pass in your life. Speak the word... So that the promise I made to Abraham can be a reality for you. Why is the church 
in such an unblessed condition, even though they've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Why is the church walking in such a low level of blessing? And I'm not just talking about physical things. I'm talking about material. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not talking just about material things. I'm talking about physical health. I'm talking about all the spiritual blessings that Jesus obtained for us. Why is the church walking in such a low level of that? Because they won't open their mouths to speak what God said. In fact, the church will fight against people that, that will teach. Speak the word. Wow, who do those people think they are? Seriously? I mean, God said it even to Israel. This is not some new doctrine. Oh, that word of faith stuff, it's just brand new. It never came around until after World War II. It's some new false doctrine. Strange fire. Well, Moses didn't think it was strange. Moses is the one that's speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost to tell the children of Israel, keep the commandments, because the word is nigh thee even in thy mouth and in thy heart. And Paul called that the word of faith which we preach. Well, the name for it may be kind of new, but it was certainly around in Paul's day. He called it the word of faith. He said what he preached was the word of faith. How in the world does the church argue against preaching the word of faith? It's what Paul said he preached. And he got people saved, he got people healed, he got people filled with the Holy Ghost. But what does the church do? The church speaks against it. Why? Because they're doing just like Peter did when Jesus said he's going to the cross. Not so, Lord. Well, Jesus said that those words that's, that Peter spoke by the inspiration of the devil, those words that were contrary to what his words, God's words were, were an offense to him. I wonder if they're still offensive. Let's keep reading. Verse 17. But if thine heart turn away so that thou wilt not hear, but shall be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I denounce unto you this day. Now how are they going to serve other gods? Well, we know that idol worship and stuff like that was going on. But what's the worshiping other gods that he's talking about in this context? He's talking about not speaking the blessings of God that he made through Abraham. But if thou will turn away, so that thou will not hear, but be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I denounce unto you this day that you shall surely perish, because I'm mad at you and I didn't want you to have this good stuff anyway. No, it's their choice, not God's choice. He's saying, look, this is the way that it works. I denounce unto you this day that you shall surely perish and that you shall not prolong your days upon the land whither thou pass over Jordan to possess it, to go to possess it. Notice what God's saying. You will go into the promised land because I've promised that. But it won't do you any good. Now, what is that a picture of if it's not a picture of the church who has confessed Jesus as their Lord and Savior, been made new creatures, born again, made new creatures in Christ Jesus, a new species of being, blessed with every heavenly blessing in, a, every blessing in heavenly places, walking around through the earth saying, with the keys of the kingdom, walking around through the earth saying, I don't know why God's letting this happen to me. What is that not a picture of? If we're not in the promised land through the, the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus, what are we in well, listen to most of the church world talk the idea is well god just left us here kind of on our own until he comes back well wasn't that kind of him 
Well, what about the stuff that he said, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven? What about that? Well, that wasn't for us. Well, who was it for? It was for the apostles. Oh, I see. So God wanted Jesus to be raised from the dead so that the select group of 11 guys could have signs and wonders and miracles. But after that, for the thousands of years following their death, the church is just supposed to tough it out and do what? Well, just do the best we can. Well, how's that working for us? Looks to me like the best the church can do is pretty poor in comparison to what Jesus said about being his disciples. Are you getting the point? Let's keep going here. Verse 19. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you. Notice the record's already been called, folks. That I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. Now what seed is he talking about? What seed is Moses talking about on behalf of God? Well, we know he's talking about the physical descendants of Abraham. But God's intent was for the physical descendants of Abraham to recognize the Messiah that he sent. His son Jesus that he sent to the earth. Accept him. So that the seed of, uh, of Abraham, those that are Christ, are the seed of Abraham. That, that blessing could be passed down to the church. The Jews are the ones that rejected Jesus by their own choice. How did they reject Jesus? Through the words of their mouth, mostly. So how are we supposed to choose life? Through the words of our mouth. That's how you get saved. Through the words of your mouth. Let me ask you a question. You remember when you got saved? Some of you have to think back a long time. You remember when you got saved? You remember hearing about Jesus going to the cross and, and being raised from the dead? How much did you believe that? Now, I understand it worked. I understood that you believed it enough to confess Jesus as Lord and, and, and say the prayer that somebody led you into or however it worked for you, however you, you know, entered in. But how much did you really believe that? You didn't have any physical evidence. Did you consider the guy that told you so trustworthy that there was not a shadow of doubt in your mind? It's not how it was for me. How much did you really believe that? Is it safe to say that we all just kind of made a choice to do what the preacher or whoever we were talking to told us to do and that was to say the prayer? In other words, is it fair to say that it was more in our mouth than it was in our heart to begin with? That's the way it was for me. But boy, it's big in my heart now. But it started in my mouth. It started in my mouth. It did not start in my heart. It started in my mouth. I heard the words. I thought I knew on the inside something about, yeah, I need that. So I found out from my mom how to do it. She knelt me down by the bed. We prayed a prayer, and things changed. But not because it was so big in my heart, not because I, I, I knew that I loved Jesus. The love for Jesus came after I spoke it. The love for Jesus came after I spoke salvation. After I confessed Jesus as my Lord. I'm, thankful, I'm glad and thankful that my mom knew how to do it. I'd have been in a mess if I hadn't. Don't know who it would have gone to then. How do you choose life? Through the words of your mouth. How do you choose death? 
through the words of your mouth. Finally, turn with me. We'll close with this. Turn with me over to Galatians chapter 3. I've been referring to this all along. Well, turn to two scriptures, Romans chapter 5 and Galatians chapter 3. Romans 5 and Galatians 3. We'll start in Galatians 3. We'll get this in context. Look with me to verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us, past tense, already done. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Now the curse of the law is, is uh, identified and specified in Deuteronomy chapter 28. We only read the first part of the blessings. But the rest of the chapter, beginning with about verse 15 down through the end of the chapter, is all about this curse will come on you if you don't uh, keep the commandments. And we know the context is keeping the commandments through the words of your mouth. If you don't speak in line with what God says, if you don't act in line with what God says, then these curses will come upon you. So it tells us that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He didn't say he did away with the blessing. He said he did away with the curse for those who will exercise their authority in Christ. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that or so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. Secondly, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, there are several different things that you can, you can look at with this. One of the things, one of the promises of the Spirit is obviously that Jesus will live on the inside of you, that, or God's life will change you and make you a new creature. But there are other promises of the Spirit that were made as well. For example, Genesis chapter 21, verse 17 that we talked about. After Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice, and God stopped him and said, Now I know you won't withhold your son. He said, Your seed will be as the stars of the sky. And your seed, Jesus, will possess the gate of his enemies. Well, you're in Christ. That's why it's so important to know what the Bible says about being in Christ. Because everything the Bible says is it belongs to Jesus now, belongs to you. Because you're in Christ. God doesn't look at you next to Jesus. God looks at you as being in Jesus. He sees you and him as one of the same. And that's what Jesus was trying to tell the disciples in John chapter 16. In the day of the resurrection, following my resurrection... I'm not going to have to pray to the Father for you because he loves you just like he loves me because you loved me, Jesus is saying. So the promise of the Spirit has to do with authority as well. Possessing the seed of your, uh, I'm sorry, possessing the gate of your enemies. Notice verse 29. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What promise? All the things we just read in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and chapter 30. Blessings on every hand. Blessings going, coming in and going out. All these blessings overtaking you. You can't outrun them. Shouldn't have to chase after them because they're chasing you. Now notice Romans chapter 5 verse 17. For if, literally since, by one man's offense, Adam's offense, death, spiritual death, the law of sin and death, reigned by one. Much more. Everybody say much more. This is a, a, well, I don't want to say it's a bad translation, but it really doesn't convey the thought. Much more means it's so much beyond, it's really uh, a foolish to compare them. In other words, it's saying the work of Jesus was so much greater than the work of Adam that brought the law of sin and death. The work of Jesus to deliver us from the law of sin and death is so much greater, it's not even to be compared. That's what much more means. Since by one man's offense, death, spiritual death, the law of sin and death, 
reigned by one Adam, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. Folks, that's salvation and coming to the knowledge of who you are in Christ. Shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Now, how are we going to reign in life? Well, remember Jesus said, the kingdom of God doesn't come with outward show. A lot of people were waiting for Jesus to come back so they can see something. And they think then, when Jesus comes back for us, then we'll really have something. Folks, the Bible says the kingdom of God doesn't come back with outward show. Why? Because the kingdom of God is within you. So you're, if you're going to reign in life, you're going to reign from within, from your spirit. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. You're going to have to reign from within. How are we going to reign from within? The only way your spirit can ever express itself or exercise authority is through the words of your mouth. If you're going to reign in life, it's going to be because you reign through your words. Or else you're not going to reign. Notice God's intent was not for us to be saved. God's intent was for us to have a relationship with him through Jesus so that we could reign in life. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of disappointing my Heavenly Father. I'm ready to reign more than I've ever reigned before. Well, I want that too, Pastor Mike. How are we going to do that? There's only one way you can do it, and that's through the words of your mouth. Start saying what God's Word says about you. Start saying you have what God's Word says you have. It's the only way that it can come to pass. It's the only way that you can exercise authority. That's how you bind the law of sin and death. It's still operating here in the earth and to a great degree operating against the church. You bind the law of sin and death by the words of your mouth. You loose the blessing of Abraham by the words of your mouth. And if you're not willing to say it, it doesn't matter what you know. The Bible doesn't say you're blessed according to what you know. It says you're blessed according to what you say. I think a lot of people just try to keep the word bottled up in their mind and think that's good enough. It's not. It's not the knowledge of the truth that does you any good. It's the acting on the truth by speaking the word of God that causes you to reign in life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have to reign in life. We know that Jesus died for us to have a complete salvation. Not a halfway salvation, not a so-so salvation, but a complete salvation. We know that we enter into the kingdom of God through the words of our mouth and we enter into every blessing that Jesus has obtained for us by the words of our mouth. Therefore, Father, we declare that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has already made us free from the law of sin and death. Has already made us free. 